Hey, so uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 4. It's uh, the fourth book in the New Testament. It's right after the book of Acts and right before, or right after the book of Luke. I do know my Bible. And right before the book of Acts. Last week, Josh was talking about Jesus and the kingdom of God. So this week, we want to continue on in that vein and look at this story of Jesus in the book of John. As a recap from last week, Jesus came proclaiming repent for the kingdom of God has come near. We looked at what the kingdom of God is and what it isn't. Um, And if you missed last week, go back, listen to it on the podcast. It's really helpful and great stuff. So we know that the kingdom of God is the space where God's will is always done. Now we live in this tension between the kingdom starting to break into reality, beginning with Jesus' announcement that the kingdom is near or at hand, And the fact that even though Jesus is alive and shown to be the true king of the world, the kingdom isn't yet fully here. We talk a lot about saying the kingdom come in Vancouver as it is in heaven, yet we admit that uh, we only get to see these glimpses of that happening, these snapshots of it. We won't be able to usher in like this utopia of holistic peace and flourishing what the Bible calls shalom. This is a tension of what we call inaugurated eschatology, which is a really fancy word that you go and pay lots of money in seminary to learn. And really, all it means is uh, the f- of saying, it's just a way of saying that uh, the kingdom of God is breaking into the world right now with Jesus, and yet it's still not fully here yet, and won't be until he returns. We will continue to see the fractured and brokenness of our city and our lives. We'll continue to see things like neglect of the marginalized, sex trafficking, abuse, and death. And if we look out into the wider world, there are even more and darker examples of the apparent absence of God's will and kingdom in the world. Kids caught in the crossfire of a civil war in Syria who are either being killed by bombs and bullets or by starvation, and the best that the world can offer them is this aid convoy that ends up not even getting to them, and in fact uh, gets bombed and mostly destroyed itself. It kind of seems like for every Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King Jr., both of whom made incredible changes and an incredible impact on the world in the name of the kingdom of God, for every one of them there are like scores of starving kids, genocides, gang rapes, and the like. So I guess the tension we live in right now is this. If Jesus has come and offered this kingdom to uh, humanity, how much of a difference has it really made? Where are the resounding victories and triumph of the kingdom? Is this the best we can hope for until Jesus comes back to end all of this injustice and evil and set things right? So with that in mind, let's dive in and go through this story in John chapter 4, line by line. We'll have like a ton to cover, so we're going to move quickly. So fasten your seatbelts, tray tables upright and in their locked position, and look down at chapter 4 in John, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So the first few verses here are to explain 
uh, to us verse 4. Jesus had to go through Samaria. And if you were a first century Jew and you heard this story and you heard that he had to go through Samaria, that like music in your mind would play like, duh, 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 duh. It's like the sin, sinister kind of music where you're like, oh my gosh, something's about to go down. It's almost like starting a story and saying that you had to hike through some haunted woods in order to get to your destination. You may be wondering, okay, so what's, what's so bad about Samaria? And that's a great question. Here's your two-minute history lesson. In the Old Testament, Israel became, began as one nation. But after a while, there is a civil war, and the northern kingdom uh, is split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel. They're called Israel. The southern kingdom took on the name Judah. So you had the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. Eventually, Israel, the northern kingdom, was conquered by the Assyrians, and most of the Israelites were deported to other places in the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians then brought in other uh, people of ethnic backgrounds and religious backgrounds into Israel, and they intermarried, thusly creating the Samaritans. The Judeans, on the other hand, in the southern, uh, in the southern part of the country were, were like yeah, a little stronger than the Israelite cousins or whatever you want to say. They held out for a while longer, but then the Babylonians eventually came. They conquered them. Think like the book of Daniel. And yet they, in exile, retained their cultural and ethnic identity. And eventually they came back to their country of Judah to rebuild their uh, culture and their um, city. Now, depending on who you would ask, Jew or Samaritan, you'd get a different reason as to the rifts. Jews would say Samaritans didn't want them to come back from exile and rebuild, and so were in constant opposition to the Jews, uh, and were honestly constantly harassing them and making life difficult for them. The Samaritans, on the other hand, they would say, hey, when the Jews came back from exile, we actually wanted to help them rebuild the temple, except they didn't want us to because we had a mixed ethnic background. Whatever the case may be, it escalated generation after generation. Now, along comes Jesus. At this point, Jews considered Samaritans not only hated enemies, but utterly unclean religiously. And this hatred was reciprocated by the Samaritans. It's kind of an imperfect analogy, but we can think of like the Palestinian-Israeli conflict right now. Like that intensity would have been kind of what the intensity back between the Jews and Samaritans back in the first century so most Jews would take the longer route around Samaria in order to completely avoid it. So in Jesus' day, you had Judah in the south still with the capital city of Jerusalem. In the north, you had Galilee, which is where Jesus was from. In the middle between the two, that was Samaria. Most Jews would take the long way around instead of the shorter route going straight through. But instead, we see Jesus choosing to go through Samaria. So let's keep reading in the text. Verse 5, so he came to a t town in Samaria called Suchar, or if that's hard to say, just say Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Two details we need to pick up on in order to help frame this story properly. The first is that Jesus is tired or exhausted from his journey. Now, if you're anything like me in our Western culture, you may have a picture of Jesus in your mind that looks something like this. Oh, look at Jesus. Like he has like a well-manicured beard. I guess he has blue eyes. His hair looks like well-conditioned and shampooed and stuff. And... 
He looks great, right? The latest fashion trends from Jerusalem. I think he probably stopped by H&M or something before this. Like, that looks awesome. Okay, well, that's one picture of Jesus. Maybe a more realistic one would be something like this. Yeah, kind of like a dude that looks like he's from the area of Palestine. Okay, he looks hot and sweaty, and it's not super glamorous. That's probably something more like what Jesus looks like. So, the, uh, so we have that first detail. Jesus was hot and tired and probably sweaty. The second detail to notice is that it's noon, which is around the hottest point of the day there. So uh, these two facts are good to have in the back of your minds because they're going to color the story as a whole as we keep reading. So let's look at down at verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came and draw, to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And now the plot thickens a bit. Not only is Jesus in enemy territory and exhausted, now here comes the enemy, a Samaritan. And what's worse, it's a woman. No offense, ladies. In first century Israel, women were at best thought of as second-class citizens. A woman found her value in having children and keeping a good home. They had, like, no public life or value in that culture. The attitude towards women in Jewish society was reflected in this prayer of thanks that men would literally pray to God. They would thank God that they weren't a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That's great, guys. Way to go. I'm sure they had a lot of happy wives back home. So we see Jesus is alone. His disciples aren't around to back him up, but don't miss something because the woman is alone as well, which is odd in that culture. Usually women of a village would head to the well in the morning when it's cooler for a chance to socialize with one another. Here this woman has come alone and during the hottest part of the day. Maybe she's an introvert. We'll come back to this. So here we have Jesus alone with this woman. And typical Jesus, he breaks the social customs of his day twofold. First, he engages with a Samaritan, which we've covered. That's a huge taboo. You don't do that. Second, he talks to a woman who isn't his wife or family member, which is another huge taboo. Rabbis or teachers would never waste their time speaking in public with women because they were uneducated and they had better things to do. So Jesus should know better. And I love how she calls him on it. She's like, what in the world do you think you're doing asking me, a Samaritan woman, for water? But Jesus doesn't bite on the retort. Instead, he engages with her. So look down at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, whoever, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come, uh, keep coming here to draw water. Okay, Jesus, what in the world are you doing? So the uh, first like, thing that you teach people in evangelism, one of the first things is like, don't confuse the person you're talking to. 
And Jesus starts talking about this living water, and this woman mistakes it for him talking about another water source. And she kind of uh, uh, gets offended. Why would she want this Jewish man's water from God knows where when she can drink from the very well that Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, dug himself? This well grounded her in her ethnicity and her identity and gave her value as a descendant of one of the patriarchs. Why would she give that up for this strange Jewish guy? But then Jesus teases out at something enticing. This water is not enough for you, but I am offering you something far greater than Jacob could ever provide for you. But check out the woman's response. Jesus mentioned eternal life. This is like, oh, it's the fountain of youth or something like that. Uh, But she's more concerned about not having to come out to, to this well to draw water anymore. He mentions eternal life. She's like, so I won't have to come back to this well. Something's not clicking here. What's going on? Let's keep reading to find out. Verse 16, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Whoa. Jesus totally calls her out, but now the picture of the woman is becoming much more clear. She's most likely at the well alone and at noon, uh, not because she enjoys time by herself, but because she's a social outcast. Divorce uh, was most exclusively a one-sided act in the first century, and the narrative doesn't say exactly why she had five husbands and why those marriages ended. Most likely, divorce had something to do with the majority of those marriages. So divorce was a most, mostly a one-sided act. Uh, the man could divorce a woman for any reason. And clearly, uh, if this woman had five husbands, then something must be wrong with her. At least that's what the assumption would have been in her village. You can imagine the gossip and the shaming this woman would have had to endure simply to get some water. You can t- start to see why her mind immediately jumped to this living water being the way out of her shame. She could avoid it altogether. Who wants eternal life when your life is utterly miserable? Now, to us, this may be awkward and rude for Jesus to have mentioned. Isn't Jesus supposed to be tolerant, like love everyone, accept everyone kind of guy? Kind of rude to just like say it like, hey, what's going on with your life? But the way Jesus does this, the language he uses is not shaming. It's just stating a fact that this is your living situation. This is what you've been through. Let's keep reading to see what happens next. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So a lot of people and scholars think she brought this up to change a subject about worshiping, where's the right place to worship. Jesus, you know, had brought up her past and her current living situation. And she's like, oh, you know, red light, shame is about to happen. It's getting a little awkward. Let me change the subject. Well, that could be part of the reason for her changing the subject. But I think there's a sincerity here uh, from her that we'll see Jesus respond to. She acknowledges that Jesus has some sort of special connection with God. Obviously, Jesus couldn't have known her living situation without this revelation from the Lord. So he must be some sort of prophet. Maybe he knows how to settle this issue between Jews and Samaritans. Now, place, get this, place was really important when it came to the proper worship of Yahweh to the Jews and Samaritans. And this was one of the many things that caused such a deep rift. 
hatred between uh, these two people were just inflamed because uh, there is a question, was the proper place to come before God's personal presence at the temple in Jerusalem, like the Jews thought, or was it on Mount Gerizim in Samaria? And we may not think that uh, place is a big deal. I mean, we have like I think 10 churches or something in the downtown Vancouver area, and we have this uh, really unhealthy, consumeristic church culture in in general in the West where it's like, oh, I went to this one church, the guy spoke for 40 minutes and not 37 minutes, uh, and then this one guy sang a song that was like three years old, it was ancient, so I need to go check out this other church and see if it fits more of my preferences. That's bad for everyone involved. But we, we understand that like place isn't this huge thing, but for the Jews and the Samaritans, they both couldn't be correct. One was obeying Yahweh and actually interacting with him, and the other wasn't. The woman addresses this straight on. If you're a prophet of Yahweh, who is actually worshiping him correctly, us or you Jews? Let's look at Jesus' response in verse 21. Woman, or that's another way in that culture to say madam or ma'am, or miss, so it's not like derogatory, he's just saying, you know, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks." God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So Jesus is really blunt in his assessment of the narrative of the scriptures. And his point is not that the Jews are better than the Samaritans. He's simply explaining that Yahweh, the God of Jacob, has been working through the Jewish people. Think the Old Testament narrative that we've been studying in the year of biblical literacy. And although the Samaritans accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they chose to reject the writings of the prophets and the wisdom literature. They had an incomplete picture of Yahweh and what he was up to in the world. But that's actually the lesser of Jesus' points. He wants this woman to know that his coming, uh, that with his coming, the importance of place is being superseded by the the importance of the spirit and truth. And this is easy for us to understand. Like I said, we don't need to go to a special place to approach the presence of God. We can pray in our car. We can pray at home. We can expect some sort of interaction with the Lord wherever we really want it, right? But for them, this would have been a groundbreaking idea. And we get to do that by the Spirit of God. But this truth piece is really big. It's not just speaking against the practice of using God for our own means and ends. If I do this for you, God, then you do this for me sort of attitude. Like, don't, don't have that attitude. That's bad. Um, but instead, this idea of truth speaks to a true, true reality as opposed to an illusion. There's a true reality which we step into when we interact with God via the Spirit. There is substance and truth in this relationship. And Jesus is saying that this is what God wants, intimate relationship through his spirit with people. It doesn't have to be in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim. And the woman's response kind of seems to be a maybe. 
As a good Samaritan, she awaits the coming of the Messiah, and it's not quite the same as the Jewish Messiah. To the Samaritan, the Messiah was more like a Moses figure. So she essentially says, yeah, we'll see if you're right when Messiah comes. And then, really in stunning fashion, Jesus comes straight out and says, I am he. I'm the Messiah. In John's gospel, this is the first person Jesus declares openly to that he is the Messiah. And if you read the other gospels, you see Jesus oftentimes telling people not to tell, to say that he's the Messiah. He's like, hey, keep it under wraps. Don't like go around spreading uh, the news. Just, just let's keep it hush, hush. But here we have Jesus telling this Samaritan woman who's in a sinful lifestyle, I'm the Messiah. Let's keep reading to see how this plays out. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. And now the disciples come back, they interrupt interrupt this really interesting conversation that Jesus is having with this woman, and we see their unwillingness to ask Jesus uh, what he's doing. They're like, oh my gosh, he's talking to a woman who's a Samaritan, but they don't say anything, and it kind of betrays their embarrassment at, at how their rabbi was acting. Jesus should know better than to talk to a Samaritan woman. But look at her response. Because Jesus struck a chord with her, obviously. She left her water jar, the whole reason why she had come out to the well at the hottest point of the day, and went back into town. She went to the very people she was trying to avoid, and she invites them to come and meet Jesus. Well, that's a little bit of a change. Skip down to verse 39, and let's finish the story. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of this, uh, and because of his words, many more became believers. They said to him, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. So we have the villagers, they follow this outcast of a woman, probably in part of, uh, of there's this tremendous claim of, hey, check out this guy, he did all of this cool stuff. Told me, he told me my whole life, and, and probably in part because of her changed demeanor. And their initial investigations yield promising results, so these Samaritans invite to host their enemy, this Jewish rabbi and his disciples, for a couple days. And what's amazing is, like, these Jewish men accept. I, I can imagine the disciples probably grumbled about that a little bit, but they accept. They stay a couple days. And the Samaritans are convinced, not just because of the woman's testimony now, but because they have experienced Jesus firsthand. This Jewish rabbi is the savior of the world. All right, are you guys still with me? You're still tracking, you're good? Yes, no, kind of, three people, Josh is. That's good. Whoo, one person is tracking. All right, so let's talk about what this means for us today. How does this story relate to the kingdom of God here and now? I think the literary technique of this story is absolutely beautiful and moving. It's a story full of subtlety, and I think for us, we need to embrace the subtlety. As a culture, we love triumph. We love not only victory, but we want great, amazing victory that we can make monuments about and statues, you know, or I guess like our generation now, uh, Instagram posts, something that is easily summed up in a picture and a few sentences. 
a clear cut and decisive overcoming. And I think honestly with Instagram, like the hiking pictures are a perfect example of this. There's something about a hike and Instagram that go together, right? When, when you reach that end point, the summit or waterfall or whatever, there's something so natural about snapping a picture, adding a filter and posting it on Instagram for all to see your triumph. And honestly, this isn't me bashing that. Uh, when, uh, when Hannah and I used to go do fun stuff like hikes or whatever else, and it would become the time to like take a picture or a selfie, uh, I would become like this two-year-old on the verge of a tantrum, like scoffing and complaining and having a sour attitude, except I was there like ruining the moment way more than like a selfie would ever ruin the moment. And then I realized like it's kind of nice to have pictures of good times, right? To have like good memories. And so I guess I decided to become an adult and I don't act like that anymore <laughs> most of the time. So I'm not bashing Instagram hiking pictures. Keep taking them, they're great. I just think it's a really great example of triumph. The problem becomes when we want and expect the kingdom of God to fit neatly into a photo on our Instagram account. We want the straightforward narrative of, I saw the challenge, I attempted to conquer the challenge. It was a bit hard, but then I conquered. When, let's say, there's a problem with the foster care system and kids need caring for, so we put together a big to-do to raise money or clothes or support foster parents somehow and then take a step back and marvel in our triumph. We can take that picture. We can say, look at what we have accomplished. Except the problem we just addressed with our big plans is still there, staring us in the face. Kids still need homes or adoption. They're still often being neglected. Foster parents are still at their wits end and we're back to square one. What this story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman shows is the subtlety of the kingdom of God. So let's look at some of the subtlety in the narrative. In this story, we have Jesus who is hot, tired, thirsty, and probably very sweaty. And along comes this Samaritan woman into his life. And how easily it could have been for her to view her as offensive or an inconvenience Everything in Jesus' culture was screaming at him to, at the very least, ignore the woman's existence and, at most, condemn her vigorously for her Samaritan beliefs and her sinful and worthless life. But Jesus does the complete opposite to the astonishment of the woman and, eventually, the disciples as well. He treats her with patience, respect, and dignity. As followers of Jesus, we are making it our goal to be like our rabbi Jesus. Well, we have here a demonstration of our rabbi's character, how he relates to those in society that have little to no value, those that are easily demonized or gossiped about or condemned. And I think the question for all of us is who is that to you? Is it the person that identifies LGBT? Is it the right-wing fundamentalist? The African-American man who is shot to death by police? Is it the drug addict or is it the atheist? I remember last summer, Hannah and I had some car troubles. We had two cars, but my old beater of a car died, and so we had to figure out how to get to both of our jobs with just one car. She was working at Starbucks at the time, and I was working at Fred Meyer. And so we, we kind of figured it out, but it ended up I had to take the bus a couple times home from work, which wasn't a big deal. I grew up riding TriMet all over the Portland metro area, so I kind of knew what to expect. And 
It's the same as Portland, CTRAN, way to go. Uh, you can get people to places. So, um, rode the bus, and I remember one of the times riding the bus uh, from work in Salmon Creek to our house around the mall, uh, I was just sitting there looking out the window, and uh, across the aisle, kind of behind me, there was two moms with a handful of kids uh, between them. And they were obviously in a lower economic bracket than myself, and they were very loud and very obnoxious. At one point, one of the mothers, like, cussed out her young child for, like, being a rambunctious kid. And the more I listened to them staring out of my window and glancing over my shoulder every so often, the more, like, disgusted I felt, like, welling up inside, like just looking at them and, and by their behavior. They were an absolute wreck of a group. The bus traveling down Highway 99 was signaled to stop right in front of that Walmart, and lo and behold, this whole group get, get up and get out at this stop, and I remember just kind of like looking over my shoulder, lingering, watching them walk across the parking lot towards the store. They're just loud, still, and chaotic, and I thought, yeah, that figures. So the bus pulled away, and I resumed looking out my window. And the Spirit of God just gently spoke to me. Just, it was just so gentle and said, I love them. And it took everything I had not to just start crying right there in my seat, which would have been awkward for everyone. It was like I woke up from this bad dream, and I was left confronted with the reality of what's in my heart, what my character is not. And in that situation, it was the opposite of my rabbi's character. You can't take a photo of, uh, sorry, you can't take a photo of a changed character and post it on Instagram. It's really hard to take a picture of patience or love or kindness. But this is the subtlety of the kingdom. As you spend your time with Jesus, as you work in partnership with the Spirit to be like Him, you will change your character who you are will change. Your anger or dishonesty or self-centeredness will be confronted. It's at odds with the Spirit. But it's not this hopeless or lonely undertaking because the very Spirit that brought Jesus back to life after his execution is the same Spirit in you, bringing you new life out of your brokenness, failures, and sin. Our formation as disciples of Jesus will impact how we work to see the kingdom of God come in our city. Jesus started with one woman. He showed her patience and kindness and respect as he just had a conversation with her. She, just one woman, came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Then, because of her testimony, backed up by the change in her actions, her neighbors came to investigate this Jesus. They, in turn, discovered for themselves that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And at the end of this, we have a village that will never be the same again. I just want to be really blunt with you guys to make sure we understand this. Most of the kingdom of God stuff that we do as a church or missional communities or individuals most of the stuff that we undertake, we will not be able to put in an Instagram photo. Sometimes it will be, and we can celebrate the big things that God does and just say, hey, look at what Jesus has done in this situation. But often, the big things happen because of people's, people's faithfulness in countless small things. A really good example of this comes uh, to my mind, or a really good example of this that comes to mind is my wife, Hannah. 
She was adopted when she was four days old. Her birth mom, as far as we know, was in her mid to late teens and homeless. There's a great chance that her birth father was a migrant worker from Mexico, and we don't know much more uh, than that on that side of the story, but we do know her parents, Denny and Lynette, chose to adopt her. And what an awesome moment for the kingdom, a child without parents being brought into a new family and loved as a daughter. That's a moment where you could take a picture and if they had Instagram in the 80s, it would be up there and be like, hey, our new daughter's coming home. You know, like this is a a great moment. But before that happened, there were church friends who were faithful to pray for Denny and Lynette as they weighed through the available options to grow their family. There was the pastor of their church who cared for them and wanted to help them. So he steered them towards uh, the specific adoption agency. There were the family members who took care of what seemed like the insurmountable financial costs of the adoption. And that was just what made the adoption possible. That doesn't touch the stuff that happened after the adoption. And here she is today, right over there. She has a great family who loves Jesus and loves her. But the adoption would not have happened if it weren't for the people who faithfully followed Jesus and did the subtle things, from her parents who were willing to adopt, to their pastor, to their uh, family, to the people in their church. And it's just subtle things like faithfulness and caring and generosity. When we see the brokenness of the world around us, our urge is often to see it changed, or at least it should be. We know that things like starving children and racism and abuse is against the will of God. Those things will not be around in the kingdom of God. And so our call is to move against those things, to push back evil and injustice in partnership with Jesus, our King, and to trust him in that. Healing and restoration can happen in the here and now. The kingdom breaking into the darkness of the world and causing it to flee. But in order to be effective in doing this, in order to see this happen, we have to be faithful in the little things. It's just mundane things. Your character matters. My character matters. Not being flaky matters. Reading your Bible matters. Praying matters. Patience matters. Kindness matters. Remember from the story Jesus, tired as he was, it was about noon, the hottest point of the day. A Samaritan, a woman. This story we read displays Jesus' faithfulness in the subtle things, showing the woman respect and dignity and patience against what his culture expected of him. For us tonight, The call is to be faithful to the subtle things. Be faithful to partner with God in your formation. Make space for God to work in your life, to shape you, and to transform who you are day by day, to be a reflection of our King Jesus. Be faithful in praying and working for the kingdom to impact our neighborhoods and workplaces and city. Be a faithful mom, be a faithful teacher, be a faithful office worker. Be a faithful presence in your missional community. Be faithful to invite people to come and check out Jesus because we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Let's pray. If you don't mind, uh, go ahead and just stand up.
So let's just take a few moments to invite the Spirit to speak and just listen. I think uh, for the story, maybe uh, what resonated with you is uh, the need to be faithful in the small things. Maybe you want to know specifically what that is. Now is the time we can ask the Spirit, what, what do we need to be faithful in? Or maybe for you, you need to hear and see Jesus act in such a loving and kind way and know that that's his attitude towards you as well. So whatever it is, let's just take a few moments. I'm going to invite the Spirit to speak, and let's just listen. Listen.